This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Can the adversity students face be boiled down to a number? The makers of the SAT are going to try. Our teachers say that's both a good and not-so-good thing. Plus, Bernie Sanders takes dead aim at charter schools. Does he make fair points? We have teachers on both sides of that debate. And teacher evaluations. Some of our educators have had some really awkward experiences. What can make getting observed more productive? We have ideas. All those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Kirsten Brown, you used to be in the classroom. Now what do you do in education? I am a middle school and high school principal. Paul Donovan, what do you teach? I teach um, dual credit college mathematics. And joining us on the line from Chicago, Lynn Osborne-Simmons, what do you teach? I teach special education at a high school in Chicago public school system. Kirsten and Paul, both educators in the Kansas City Metro, Lynn, as we said, is in Chicago. Well, let's get to it. Can the hardships a student has faced be boiled down to a number? The College Board is going to try. Starting next year, some 150 colleges are going to be given students so-called adversity score along with their traditional SAT score. Here's how it works. Adversity scores, or what the College Board calls the disadvantage level, will be calculated using more than a dozen quantitative metrics that are intended to give context to students' education, things like neighborhood crime rates, housing vacancy rates, their community's average educational attainment level, and so on. All this is put into a final score on a scale between 0 and 100. A score above 50 indicates a student has faced more obstacles growing up on average than other students. A score below 50 is supposed to show a student has enjoyed more advantages on average. College Board CEO David Coleman told The Atlantic that these adversity scores are meant to help colleges find students who might have lower SAT scores or weaker transcripts, but who would ultimately thrive in college because of other characteristics and strengths. SAT and also ACT scores are often criticized for being a simplistic and overly deterministic metric of rating students, and higher scores are often simply seen as proxies for wealth and privilege. But will adversity scores help change that? Or, as some critics contend, will this just become a new avenue by which advantaged kids and their families can game the system? So on one hand, this appears to be a well-intentioned effort to capture more precisely something we talk a lot about on this podcast, the context of students' lives. On the other hand, boiling it down to a number seems kind of arbitrary and like any metric has the potential to be abused and misrepresented. So for my teachers here, Kirsten and Paul and then Lynn in Chicago, in general, do you think assigning kids a so-called adversity score is a good idea? I think it's a good idea in theory. I just wonder about the way they're going about measuring it. Will it actually create the impact they intend? Or are there unintended consequences from assigning such scores that may label students in a way where they are perceived in a negative way uh, as they're trying to gain admissions into certain schools. Yeah, it's so interesting. I want to get back to that point about just the idea of adversity and and labeling a kid's adversity and what that might mean. But uh, Paul and Lynn, what are your reactions just to the idea of what the College Board is trying to do here? I think it's um, a great idea. I think it's worth trying. 
I think we need to make sure we pay very close attention to how it's implemented and what the effects are, and maybe also find a way to give the student an option whether they want their adversity score to be calculated or if they just want to go straight off of their mm. scores. Maybe let them decide. Yeah. Lynn, in Chicago, what do you think? I mean, like Kirsten said, it's good in theory. I mean, anything that helps is great, but it's so hard to measure and quantify adversity because what one person might see is adversity. Some person, other students like that say everyday life, and they can struggle through it. So it's hard to quantify. Yeah, and I mean, just based on what we know, and there have been concerns raised about the transparency of all this, how open will the college board be to allowing people to see how the sausage is made, so to speak? But do you think factors like home values and crime rates in your students' neighborhoods, for instance, should colleges be be looking at that? Is that the type of context you think colleges should have that could more fairly represent your students and the adversity they face? Do you think numbers like that and metrics like that are useful or misleading? I think it has the potential to be both. Like one of the articles on it said that when they talk about the crime rates in the neighborhood, that's only reported crime. I know a lot of the neighborhoods with the students I teach from, they just don't necessarily call the police when there's a crime. So it's a, it could be a, a problem there. You know, one of the top schools in our school district, one it's one of the most affluent neighborhoods, but their crime rate is high because maybe because of transiency or but the students don't really seem that affected. So can you um, for all of you, can you can you quantify adversity in your students lives? Do you think about that a lot? I think there are factors that I consider that would um, definitely be more adverse than others. But, you know, it's just so subjective. It's hard to come up with like a hard round number based upon all the perceived adversities. I think that's where it's challenging because some of these things are subjective and they vary in, in level of, of degree as well. Yeah. Paul or Lynn, can you, do you ever think about quantifying the adversity that your students face? Sometimes you don't really know all what they face, especially the first month, but most diversity in my present school they face is like some type of like abuse, and a lot of times they're not talking about it. So they're not talking about who really knows about it until it gets to a point where, you know, they have like some type of meltdown or something like that. Well, it's interesting that, that all three of you, your initial reactions are, I, I might say fairly or not, guarded Optimism. I think all of you are are um, expressing a sort of ambivalence or uncertainty about what exactly adversity means, and that ambivalence was also echoed by author Thomas Chatterton Williams. He was writing in the New York Times after news of these adversity scores came out, and he's highly critical of this system as we know it so far. He calls adversity scores a band-aid, um, also a pseudo-scientific index of oppression that will ultimately not capture. Um, the multifaceted and often subtle ways in which hardship can impact students, especially marginalized students of color. And I'll quote Chatterton Williams at length here from his piece in the New York Times. He says, no two lives are commensurate and not all adversity can be taken into account, but the College Board is attempting to dictate which forms matter and which do not. It cannot and does not attempt to assess the mental toll of being called a monkey on your walk home or of living through the premature death of a parent or sibling. And so the dehumanizing message of the new adversity index is that America's young people are nothing but interchangeable sociological points of data. 
Do you think this is dehumanizing? Do you think that this is just boiling down a student's lived experiences into a number that may or may not be accurate? What's your reaction to Thomas Chatterton Williams? I think he has a point, but I think he might be pushing it a little too far. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not the most ideal way to do it, but if he doesn't have a better solution, then he doesn't really have a whole lot of room to yeah. criticize. Yeah, and, and do you think under the under the prior system where it was just kind of like the traditional SAT score, do you think they were being shortchanged by just that? I think probably so. Hmm. I, I think that's why I think this is it's worth trying um, as long as we have the transparency and maybe a third a third uh, party to um, evaluate the program or something. Uh, Kirsten and Lynn, uh, your thoughts about the idea that this is just, um, in Thomas Chatterton Williams' words, a Band-Aid or even worse, something that's pseudoscientific and, and really in some ways dehumanizing, boiling down a kid to a number. Yeah, I definitely think it's pseudoscientific. I think about like my own personal experiences. So I grew up in a predominantly white school district, and I had adversities that I don't think are measured on this. And we should um, say, just to be clear, you are African-American. Yes, and I am so, African-American. Yeah, yeah. So um, specifically, never being like recommended or rarely being recommended for honors classes that even though I had the same grade as my, my friends and having to advocate for myself. And also just... Um, just the assumption that I could not do as well as my peers, like seen throughout the interactions I had with my teachers and how they um, interacted with me. I think those things were definitely points of adversity that aren't measured. I think perhaps a better idea would be for students to be able to capture that on their own and share their own experiences because it can be so subjective and there's not a clear way to scientifically measure these types of adversities. So, and let me say back what I thought I heard you saying. So in, in your high school experience, you grew up in, a, in circumstances in a situation where maybe a lot of points on this adversity index would not be captured, right. like high crime rates in your neighborhood. You didn't have that. Mm -hmm. um, low property values in your neighborhood. You didn't have that. Mm -hmm. But you were still facing forms of adversity, right. um, being um, an African-American student in a largely white environment right. that... Uh, in some ways hindered your education and hindered your opportunities. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lynn, what do you think? Uh, this idea that uh, your students being boiled down to a number. Well, I don't think you can quantify it. I think, but I think he's a little off. I think you can't make it seem like, oh, this is like all about science and bean counting and things like that. No, it's not a bandage. Like these students definitely need support, but I think uh, living in, in Chicago, more of the issue is these kids being so afraid of that type of labeling or so afraid that their adversities are going to be in the spotlight. They don't leave their own neighborhoods and they, even though they're qualified, it's so hard to get these kids to go away to school. They want to go to community college either because of the money or they're just so afraid of being like the only one. It's so hard to get our kids to go downtown to go to a movie or something like that to, out of their own neighborhoods. And I think more than um, an adversity score, there needs to be some type of coaching, for lack of a better word, because there's a school in Chicago it's a all-black male school, 100% college acceptance level. But after a semester, some of these kids come home because they can't deal with diversity and being the only one and things like that. They just they can't do the coffee table talk, you know. So 
We should also say kids are not supposed to see their adversity score or their disadvantage levels, a college board calls it. And we should also say only about 150 colleges are going to be using this next year. It might expand in future years. And many of these schools that will be using it next year are of the elite, almost Ivy League level, many of them. So just bear that in mind. But the idea that kids won't see their score, that is something only college admissions officials are supposed to see. But we now know that this is out there. Students will know or at least suspect that they could be getting assigned an adversity score, that their adversity in their lives will be getting measured and quantified. How can you imagine that impacting your students? I have a concern around, as a black woman, sometimes I hear the comments around, like, oh, this happened because, you know, you're black or they're trying to meet a quota, like those types of um, arguments. And so I wonder if we're assigning these um, adversity scores of students going to college that, that that would be intensified of students saying, oh, you're only here because of your adversity score. No, well, kind I mean, of, well, yeah, I mean, I yeah, could very easily see absolutely. that Absolutely, and totally disregarding all their academic efforts and prowess that allow them to be at that university and kind of putting into question their, um, you know, the legitimacy of them being there. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine your kids for all, at all your schools may not use the term adversity or talk about it in in the terms that we're talking about it, but do they understand and know each other's personal circumstances? And is there ever any kind of like comparison or dare I say the competition of like who um, is trying to overcome more? They generally, <laughs> in my school, they generally know what's going on with each other, but I don't see any, any of the uh, victim Olympics competitions who's who's dealing with more issues. So how do kids talk about it? I mean, how do how do kids um, verbalize it with their peers when they're talking about um, hardship and adversity? It's more matter of fact, mm-hmm. like this happened and this happened and so on. And then every, some, some people would say, oh, yeah, it's something like that happened to me once. But it's it's just like that's just part of life. And and so speaking of that, I, from, from uh, the way they talk about things and getting into college, I think – so at least some of the, my students would say, look, if this adversity score gets me into college, gets me more money, fine, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Give me an adversity score. Although I, I do feel strongly that if a uh, student wants to see their adversity score for the sake of transparency, I think that should be given to them. Can you see situations where people would take advantage of adversity scores, whether it be your students or, or other students where they... I mean, just thinking of human nature here, trying to enhance or increase their perceived adversity so that their score goes lower, so that it appears to help them on their application. I definitely think that whenever systems like this are put in place, there's always a risk of that happening. To your point, it is human nature. You want to set yourself up to get what, you know, put yourself in the best position to get what you want. And I, I could see that happening, which is a concern. Um, I even think about like the college admission scandal, like people, mm-hmm. do, you know, will do whatever it takes to, to get what they want in these types of um, situations. So, uh, notably, these adversity scores are not supposed to take race into account. And that's due in part to the fact that many states, including big ones like California and Florida, prohibit public colleges and universities from taking race into account during admissions. Um, many people have criticized um, the College Board for uh, not including race as a factor in determining a student's adversity. Are we going to be missing something in these adversity scores if race is not factored in? I would say yes. As an example for Kirsten's example, when she was in high school, the fact that she's African American was ignored, which also ignores some of the some of her adversity that she had to deal with. So, while I think it's a nice idea to say, "Oh, let's just go by the public socioeconomic stuff," it does, I think, miss some of the 
the more uh, subtle types of adversities. I would agree. And to that point, I think that there's often a misconception amongst folks that, you know, disadvantages are purely based upon like socioeconomics and things of that nature. And like they fail to realize that systemic racism in the world that that plays and creating barriers and um, adversities for folks. I think that that by ignoring race in this measure, you ignore the significant role that race place like has within um, our systems and how it oppresses folks. Is it good that we're talking about it though? Yes. I mean, j- just the idea of, of talking about adversity in this way, um, the college board bringing this into being, I should say the college board does not call it an adversity score. That's kind of been the term that has been now attached to it. They call it a disadvantage level, but still, is it a good thing that people in power like that are at least considering the impact that adversity is having? I think that's the most positive part of it, even if it doesn't work. At least they admit it's a thing. And they're taking the steps to try to um, take that into consideration to level the playing field and make things more equitable. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. In another sign that education truly is going to be a key issue in the 2020 presidential election, Democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders unveiled his education platform recently, which generated a lot of buzz and not a little bit of controversy within education policy circles. Sanders framed his education plan as a way to force the U.S. to finally live up to the promise of the famous Brown versus Board of Education desegregation decision that recently marked its 65th anniversary. Among other things, Sanders' plan would set a floor for states per pupil spending and would also work towards setting a national teacher salary minimum of $60,000. But Sanders also took square aim At charter schools, his proposal would put a moratorium on federal charter school funding and also place an outright ban on new for-profit charter schools. In rolling out the plan, Sanders said charter schools are making American education, in his words, more unequal and more unfair. He also said, quote, not all charter schools, but far too many in America are performing worse than public schools, end quote. I do want to address this charter school issue more narrowly before asking about other aspects of Sanders' plan and then also just about how education is playing politically leading into 2020. But we do have a charter school principal here and two teachers who teach in what are usually referred to as traditional public schools. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a difference of opinion. Um, (laughs) But I want to get your reactions uh, to Sanders' contention that charter schools are making American schools, in his words, more unequal. Well, in Chicago, you know, they're closed on many of our public schools, and then a lot of charter schools have opened up. So there is kind of like a rift between uh, educators from the different schools. But most of the time, I think it's very difficult for students that leave the public schools to go to a charter school and succeed because most of the charter schools have uh, some uh, specific expectations and they don't make it there and then they have no school to go back to or they go back to their home school or if their school is closed. They are kind of like hopping from different charter school to charter school. And I, I think most people who work at traditional public school 
feel that if funding is a big issue in, in Chicago because it's so uneven and uh, inequitable. I think that's why it's such a big issue here. Yeah. And, we, and we've had t- I mean, Chicago teachers on before who have I mean, indicated just how divisive of an issue uh, school choice and charter schools are in Chicago. Um, Lynn kind of repeating those themes. Uh, Kirsten, Paul, um, the idea that, or at least as Bernie Sanders has said, the charter schools are um, contributing to making American schools more unequal. I think so. As a charter sc- leader of a charter school, I think that charter schools, we all know, came to be um, as a matter of um, creating opportunities for students that they would normally not have. Um, They allow for innovation um, and just ways to circumvent traditional systems and bureaucracy and things that sometimes can be a part of traditional public schools. I... I think it's a, it serves as a great alternative for families. Um, and I think it's always good to have choice and options as folks try to navigate the best um, space to provide the best education possible for their student. I think there does need to be more oversight, though, with, with charter schools. I think if you have the free, more freedom and flexibility to innovate and create new, a new system, you should be held to a high standard to ensure that you are providing a quality education for students. I see so often schools in existence for, for multiple years who actually perform significantly below traditional public schools and it's harmful for students and they should not be allowed to continue if they have a track record of, of being harmful in terms of their outcomes. Yeah. And just to take a specific of Sanders' plan, Kirsten, I mean, what would a freeze on federal dollars to your charter school, what effect would that have? Because like mm-hmm. like all public schools, there is a little bit of federal money that comes in, but honestly, it's not the bigger portion of your funding stream, but what would putting a freeze on federal spending do to you? Yeah, and that's a great question because right now there's a lot of talks in Jeff's, Jefferson City, the Missouri capital, Missouri, yeah. yeah, exactly, around charter school funding. And so we're already feeling the strain of that reality. I could not, it would be devastating. We, I think it would be really hard to exist as a charter school if we lose even more funding. Really, yeah. For Paul, uh, you have in your career you've taught in and around the Kansas City metro in different districts, and there are a whole lot of different districts kind of balkanized within the Kansas City metro. Right. For those of us who don't, for our listeners who do not live here, um, do you see? Um, and, and charter schools are only really within the Kansas City um, limits. But have you seen either positive or negative effects on the schools you've taught at based on the existence of charter schools? In one district I taught, it wasn't a full charter school; it was a part of the district, but it was. It sort of acted like one where the the top students from the from middle school would go to that school for the high school, and then it did seem to dumb down the other. So you're saying that the charter school is getting kind of the 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 top That's graduates the, of your middle school, right? And and, and so not only does do, do the traditional high schools then lose out, but they also lose out on good examples of students who can show study skills and who can be good leaders because they're all. They're all going off to the charter school. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to have nothing against the kids and the parents who want to give their kids the best advantage, but there's the blade cuts both ways, or at least only maybe four ways. I don't know. Uh, rather interestingly, I think there's a larger split developing within the Democratic Party over the issue of charter schools. I mean, we just talked about Sanders' plan and how it in some ways takes direct aim at charter schools. Chalkbeat recently reported on a survey commissioned by the group Democrats for Education Reform. That is a um, very activist education reform group um, formed 
as their name would suggest, by Democrats, um, shows support for charters among blacks and Hispanics um, remains pretty steady uh, over the past few years, roughly half of each of those demographic groups saying they support charter schools. And these are black and Hispanic Democrats, self-identified Democrats. But support among white Democrats has plummeted in the same time from about 43 percent in 2016 to just 27 percent in 2018. So there is a clear racial divide um, or rift happening. And I don't know if this is beyond your purview, but I just wonder um, why. Why would there be a racial divide among people for their opinions on charter schools? I think in Chicago, if you look at any any high school, especially that's uh, majority African American, it's like basically they get nothing. Yeah, resources or opportunities, or it seems like the counselors don't have the resources to give, or as far as like clinicians, social workers, and it, it's, we just they have nothing. And I think that's what the parents are, are tired of. They. They literally get nothing. It's so blatantly obvious that, and teachers don't have the same drive. It's like, oh, you know, these black kids are not going to achieve or whatever. They say that verbally. So I think that's what, in Chicago, I know parents are tired of, and parents have taken their kids out. Oh, yeah, so I was going to say, so does that lead to the parents at these schools? Um, Yanking their kids out. And being more supportive of the idea of school choice, of charter schools, of having more options because of their frustrations with the system that they're in. Right. I recently read a statistic where like the majority of students in charter schools are black and brown students. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that figure doesn't surprise me because people of color have more students who are part of the system and they see it as a viable option. And a lot of times I see things being done to groups from groups who are not directly impacted by the system to be more clear since there are less white folks who have students in charter schools it's easy to dictate what is best for different groups when you're not a part of that but i think that the clarity and the numbers in terms of black and brown folks saying actually charter schools are something that's good shows because they're actually the ones who have students who are in those systems Uh, Well, moving on to our final topic of this episode. If you're a teacher, chances are at some point over the past year, you have been observed at least once, if not more, by an administrator. Teacher evaluations have been a key part of education reform efforts for years as schools and districts try to pinpoint teachers' impact on student achievement. At the same time, teacher evaluations are often directly linked to schools' decisions, like whether teachers get retained or dismissed, win bonus pay, or achieve tenure, if your state does have tenure. But... Are teacher evaluation systems fair? New research from Michigan suggests not always. In fact, this research shows that implicit biases are creeping into the evaluation process, potentially exacerbating teacher shortages and retention issues. Let me lay out this research first and then get our teachers' response to it. So this was a study done by several researchers from Michigan State University who analyzed more than 360,000 yearly ratings for some 97,000 different teachers in the state of Michigan over a five-year period. And here are some headline conclusions that they found on a four-point effectiveness scale running from ineffective to highly effective. Black teachers were more likely to get lower ratings than white teachers. Male teachers were more likely to get lower ratings than women teachers. Charter school teachers were more likely to get lower ratings than teachers in traditional public schools. And we'll get more into this study, but 
Uh, can we just talk first about your own experiences being evaluated? Do you think your race or gender has ever played a part in how you've been evaluated before? <laughs> I do. I do. I just think that uh, having someone... It's interesting when you see someone other than a person of color who comes in and is an admin, maybe with no administration experience, to a school like ours who is predominantly uh, have students of color, and they're just worried about you bringing the rigor home. If you're not bringing in that rigor, they are just not satisfied. And with the Danielson uh, evaluation, is very so subjective, you know, and they could think anything as a deficit. So it's really in interesting to me because uh, sometimes it is both my gender and my race and they're thinking like she can't do what we want her to do because of her background or whatever. And they don't, yeah, they don't know my background. And Lynn, you say that you, you think your race and, and, and gender have played a role. Can you, can you tell me a specific instance or, or, <laughs> or a memory that, a memory that you yeah. have where that's been well, the case? Actually, oh, sure. So, Kind of recent, uh, being evaluated by uh, African American female admin. I think a lot of us have been trying to figure out what what is it because she's kind of like just not favored, put it lightly. And sometimes there's a feeling among us that they don't want to quote unquote share the ranks. So they don't see you on equal footing as them and your ratings will be lower unless you're really putting them on a pedestal. And that has kind of happened with this one administrator. And unless you were one of those people that put her on that pedestal, then you knew what your rating was going to look like, basically. And it's like really obvious and it's very interesting. I mean, but, you know, I like, oh, this is year 20 of me teaching and, you know, there's a part you get the evaluation, you have the post-conference, and and then, uh, then you get an email and you click on it and you can sign it electronically. I'm telling you, in 20 years, I probably signed less than five of those evaluations. <laughs> so, you, I mean, you, you have felt like this has been, I mean, th this has been not only recent but ongoing. Like, this has been a pretty major part of how you feel you've been evaluated. Right. And with no substance. And I would question about it. And they, well, I really can't give you an answer. I just have to rank you this way because something else you got to do. I can't tell you what it is. or So that's why it's kind of obvious to me. And then I've had some people tell me, I really just don't know how to help you. <laughs> I just, so it's really uh, interesting. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> no, I, and I think, but I think too, because of, teaching special education, a lot of admin have a lot of problems, like how to effectively, as, as we do, effectively, like, bring, they want this thing about bringing the rigor into your classroom. And it's, you know, and so that's, that's a different layer, right, since you teach special education. I mean, that's, an, that's right. a whole other layer. Of, yeah. Um, well, uh, Kirsten, not to put you on the spot, but you are an administrator, um, are you mindful of your teacher's race and gender um, or any other other like demographic factors when you are evaluating the performance? Not that you are rating them because that of their race, but you're just mindful of how that will play a part in how your evaluation is perceived. So in terms of that, I notice certain elements of their instruction that may ha like that's highly correlated to certain factors such as the race. For example, as if a teacher, 
I know I can think of a teacher in particular who's like very culturally responsive of her instruction, which is definitely a look for. That's something that I consider when doing evaluations. She just so happens to be a black woman. And I don't think it's like just so happens to be. I think that that, that those two things correlate, of course. And so in terms of those connections, yes, I, it's, it's considered, but it's more of the, the outcome or the output that correlates to those factors such as race and gender, not necessarily the race and gender itself. As a leadership team, do you talk about implicit bias and the danger of bringing in biases when you are evaluating a colleague um, based on their race or gender? Not as much as we should be. Mm -hmm. I think we could always get better at that. Paul, what's your view as a man? (laughs) 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 I wonder how your, your evaluation evaluations have gone how have you felt well about them they've gone pretty positively but i'm not sure if i'm representative of uh the average male teacher uh i have i'm qualified to teach the college level math courses which is pretty rare and a lot of districts are having trouble filling those positions i was just suggested by a friend denver is dense is desperate for a dual credit teacher they might not be able to have all of their math programs and they I was encouraged to go to oh, Denver. Oh, you're going to go apply. to Denver now? No, I'm not. Okay. I'm, 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 I, like where I'm, I like where I'm at. But the, the point is that I could get a job in a lot of You think that places. affects your evaluation? And I yeah, do. I think yeah, in some yeah. ways they're trying to keep me happy so that I don't try to leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, back to this study from Michigan State. Um, race was a particular focus of it, and I just want to add some nuance to that top-line conclusion that I mentioned, that overall black teachers' evaluations were lower than white teachers'. Statewide in Michigan, about 20% of black teachers got the lowest rating compared to just 7% of white teachers. Um, And this was interesting. The more white colleagues a black teacher had, the more likely that that black teacher was to get a lower rating. Conversely, black teachers with more black colleagues were less likely to get Mm. lower ratings. Um, I wonder what this suggests to you. Does that surprise you or is there any sort of... um... Can you say that last data point again? Yeah, so um, more... So the more white colleagues a black teacher had, so if they were teaching in, let's say, a, a on a staff that was mostly white, um, they okay. were more likely to get a lower rating. Conversely, black teachers with more black colleagues uh, were less likely to get lower ratings. So it, it seemed like the environment in which the black teacher was teaching in affected mm-hmm. their rating. Um, and I wonder, what does that suggest to you? Are, are you surprised by that or not surprised by that? Uh, in Chicago, not surprised. Yeah, just because, like I said, the black, majority black student population, they get so few resources, which also means less professional development for the staff. So the staff is not, like, growing. And also it's, like, there's so much frustration among the staff, and they kind of, like, take it out on each other. It is, like, really very such a tense environment. So I think... Because they're not getting resources with students, not getting professional development, or maybe not even looking for a way to grow because of, I don't know, and that's been my experience in those schools. Then, yeah, then uh, the evaluations have been low, but the teachers are going to still be there, and everyone's going to be there unhappy together and go on and on and on until they uh, turn the school around, as they do. So I think that's kind of like a tradition in Chicago public schools, which is, like, scary to me. Uh, So... Uh, Kirsten, what do you want your teachers to get out of their evaluations? Um, what's the what's the point of it? What's the purpose? I yeah. Mean, so basically how I do evaluations is 
teachers rank themselves. I would get a rubric ahead of time. It's really clear. They rank themselves. And then I follow up with the same rankings and we like kind of normal. Like, okay, this is why I chose. And everyone can provide artifacts and evidence for why, why where they felt where they did. And so there's just the purpose is really to have a productive conversation on, okay, this is where you are. This is why. What are we going to do moving forward to go to the next step on the rubric, the next category in terms of um, growth? And we strategically plan for like so for example, this year we're doing them at the end of year. They're called end of year step backs. And they're, that's how we're doing our evaluation so that we can strategically plan for next year to really set the teacher up mm. for success. So you said that you have, you have look for's, you have goals. Mm -hmm. that you're, so like for, for this past year, what mm. was your, what was your focus for your teachers? Your yeah. Year? So one is just like high quality instruction, rigor, um, and, and rigor. Just, yeah. Rigor. There's that <laughs> word again. That's one. And like another one is create like show. So there are two that are chosen by the district and one, the teacher gets to create like, Hey, this is something I want to okay. focus on. Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Some lawmakers in California are calling for reforms to the state education code after public radio station KQED reported on a San Francisco teacher who was forced to pay the cost of her own long-term substitute while she underwent cancer treatment. According to California's education code, after they're allotted 10 sick days per year, teachers can have the cost of their subs deducted from their paychecks. The chair of the California Senate Education Committee is vowing to take up the issue during the next legislative session. The U.S. Education Department's Inspector General found Education Secretary Betsy DeVos used her personal email for official business on several dozen occasions during her first few months in office. Typically, government officials are prohibited from using private email for official business. That issue, of course, has been a flashpoint in recent years due to controversies over Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server when she was Secretary of State. I don't know if you've heard about that or not. As, educa <laughs> As Education Department spokeswoman says, DeVos's sending or forwarding of official emails on private accounts less than 100 times is, quote, hardly news, end quote. <laughs> And Minnesota Attorney General and former Congressman Keith Ellison issued a binding opinion that says schools cannot keep students from participating in graduation exercises because of unpaid lunch debt. The decision comes amid a furor over allegations. One Minneapolis area school district prevented students who owed money on their lunch accounts from walking at graduation ceremonies. Um, subsequently, a foundation established in the name of Philando Castile, who you might remember was a school lunch worker in the Minneapolis area who was shot and killed by a police officer during a traffic stop in 2016. That foundation established in his name paid some $8,000 to wipe away those students' debts so that they could walk at graduation. Those are some of the other education stories that recently caught our eye. Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Kirsten, what are kids at your school into? Everyone's into the woe, which is the new dance that everyone's the doing. Yes. <laughs> so like W-H-O-A. That's actually a good question. I'm not clear on the spelling. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen it written down. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, Paul, you're aware of this too. I am aware okay. of this. Uh, we're obviously an audio medium, so... Even if you demonstrate, no one will be able to see. But can you just can you describe what the woe looks like? Yeah. So you're kind of like rocking and like 
putting hands and rocking back. I don't know. It's hard to describe. It looks really good, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so all the kids are doing it. Yes. The Woe. Paul, what are your kids into? Uh, well, right now, most of them are into summer. Um, oh, and but. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, there is one um, I think that's gotten a little bit of attention. One of my classes, a pre-calculus class, uh, all of the young men, the seniors graduated already, so we have just the, the uh, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors. And all of the young men in the class were seniors. So everybody that's left in the class, which is about 10 or 11, they're, they're all um, young women. And so it's, it looks like this next batch of math, of advanced math topics, this, it's all girl power. And so, uh, and so people have like, I guess people have said something because a couple of a couple of the young ladies were like mad, that like, why are people surprised that it's all girls in a math class? But, but uh, I mean, they're doing great, and and uh, and I'm looking forward to working with them again next year. Yeah, the future is bright at Paul's school. And Lynn, uh, what are your kids into in Chicago? Well, at our school, we have uh, this thing we call the Senior Citizens Prom. And it's like reaching out to all the seniors in the community. And it's totally free for them. And uh, they get a catered dinner and students uh, gain service learning hours. And at first, when you try to like get volunteers, some people are like, I'm not going to be around old people or whatever. But my students, uh, yeah, my students were able to like, make some like potpourri jars and things that held candles and decorate the gift bags and they got so into it and one of mine who really struggles with a lot of emotional issues oh I feel so good like helping other people and I was just so shocked the class that's so bouncing off the walls they were the most into it and like helping people and they volunteered and served dinner so it was great oh what a cool idea yeah what a cool idea that your school does uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Kirsten Brown, Paul Donovan, and Lynn Osborne-Simmons in Chicago. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers.